Welcome back to Broadcaster Hour. This is Roger Hoover with you from today, Greenville, South Carolina, but normally Tuscaloosa, Alabama. We've got Kyle Cooks from Gainesville, Florida, and then going down to South Florida, we've got Glenn Geffner, one of the radio voices of the Miami Marlins, who joins us. And Geff, it's great to see you as uh, we are really thankful to you and Paul Severino with the Marlins for not only our Skype setup, but on Ecamm as well. Uh, Seven Geff Live helps set the stage for what you're seeing now. And your viewers have us to blame, right? <laughs> we, we had some fun. We had to find something to do during the shutdown for those couple of months. And we're not exactly technology wizards, but we like talking baseball. We found some people to talk baseball. We've had a lot of fun with that. Well, it certainly was a good show before we knew what the season would look like, and it turned out to be a six-game season, and then the Marlins are able to make the postseason and uh, even beat the Cubs in the postseason as well in the uh, wild card round. Uh, and for you, you got to stay in Miami throughout all of it, broadcasting those games from Marlins Park, even when the Marlins were on the road. So uh, first of all, just with the offseason just getting started for you, is it the same kind of letdown or same kind of you know needing a deep breath? due to the fact that you weren't traveling, or how does it feel uh, compared to some other off-seasons, the first few weeks of an off-season for you? It's funny, Roger. I've used this line a few times. This was the longest short season in history. It was only 60 games, not 162. We weren't on the road, didn't have the 4 a.m. arrivals. It was, for me, just a matter of driving to Marlins Park every single day over the course of those two and a half months or so. But uh, with all the protocols, with all the stress, with the Marlins went through early in the season— uh, with the challenges of doing the games remotely when the team was on the road, even when the team was at home with nobody in the ballpark, it was different. And, and it was like every day was measured in dog years. It felt a lot longer than it actually was. The fortunate news, as you pointed out, was this team surprised a lot of people made the playoffs this year. So that certainly made it more enjoyable. But it was a strange year and certainly one we hope to uh, leave behind us, move into 2021, and hopefully get back to normal somehow. From a play-by-play technical standpoint calling a game off of a monitor and and having a delay to see whether a long fly ball leaves the ballpark or not and just all the odd things that go into calling a game remotely how did you adjust and how did Dave adjust to that it's a great question Kyle and it was hard especially in the beginning the biggest thing I would say and you guys can relate to this doing what you do is you don't realize how little you actually see on television. What we had was a monitor in front of us that had the exact feed that was going out over there on Fox Sports Florida. Then we had a big screen TV called the Multiview that had four or five different shots. We had the all nine shot looking down on the entire field. So you could see where the defense was lined up. You could look up and see if base runners trying to go from first to third, things like that. Uh, we had views of the bullpens, a couple of other shots in different ballparks maybe. But when you're just looking at what's on TV, and that's where I spent 95% of my time staring, you don't realize how hard it is to broadcast a game. I'm somebody whose eyes are always darting around the ballpark. I want to see where the defense is. I want to know how big a lead the guy's got at first base. I want to know if the bullpen is getting active. I want to know if there's a pinch hitter on deck. I want to see everything, every pitch seemingly. And you just can't do that watching on TV. Uh, And then beyond that, as you said, judging fly balls, knowing if a low line drive hits the ground or not, it's hard. And as a radio broadcaster who feels like it's really important to stay right on top of the action, I don't want my listener to hear the roar of the crowd and then two seconds later say home run. I want to be right on top of it. And, And it was hard to have to sit back at times when you just didn't know for sure when the ball left the bat how high it was hit, how far it was hit, where exactly it was hit. And sometimes they'd show the center fielder, and you'd say fly ball to the center field, but then the camera would move. You'd see the right fielder making the catch. There were little things like that that, uh, you know, there was nothing we could do about them. 
as time went on, we got more and more used to it, but it certainly made us appreciate the home games where we could be in the ballpark, see the game unfold right in front of us, and have everything right there for us. And how about the energy for big calls? Because you have the low hum of, of a fake crowd noise, but and when you have a, a crowd there, you can almost lay out and let them tell the story. But here, because it's fake crowd noise, you almost have to cover more of the ground, give it a little bit more energy. How did you feel that you handled that situation and bringing the necessary pop to big calls with empty stadiums? When we were at home and you had that fake crowd noise that we could hear our headsets, I actually turned my headset up a little bit higher than normal. And because of that, and actually because of my view down to the field, the way the front of the radio booth blocks my view of the seats directly in front of me, I'm just looking right down onto the field. So I don't normally see the crowd at Marlins Park a lot unless I look for it down the lines. But with the crowd noise cranked up in my ears, I actually kind of felt pretty normal for the home games and was able to call a game without additional energy being forced in there. On the road, there's no question I had to find that energy on a daily basis. Uh, And there were times in a a 0-0 game where just things were kind of moving slowly. There wasn't a lot going on. I'd have to remind myself from time to time, you got to pick up the energy. Uh, You got to the playoffs, it was a little bit easier to have that energy naturally. But uh, it was tough remotely especially to try to come up with that. But it was something I was very conscious of throughout the year. And I think as time went on, I got better at it. Tough to call games remotely, but it's also tough to prepare for games remotely, uh, especially for what you were used to for decades working in baseball. You just couldn't go in the clubhouse and ask Brian Anderson about his swing or anything like that. So how did you prepare for games this year? Well, that was the biggest adjustment because I'm a preparation freak. I spent a lot of time in the clubhouse, on the field, trying to get as much one-on-one time with people as possible. I'm always down there when Don Mattingly meets the, the media before the game starts, but I'll generally ask Donnie a question off to the side before or after if there's something I really want to know. Uh, you know, the way I prepare, I think, is different than many people in that I don't use media guides and I don't use game notes. I try to do everything, whether it's statistical stuff on my own every day, bring my own information to the broadcast. And then from an information side, I want to have things that you don't see on Twitter at 4.30 in the afternoon because it's what somebody said in the clubhouse in front of 12 writers, or you don't hear in the television broadcast. I want to have all my own stuff. So because of that, I had to work a lot harder this year, no question. Uh, we, we did a few things. One was uh, just because of relationships I've developed over the years, when you have people's cell phone numbers, when you can call them, when you can text them, when you can direct message them on social media, I did a lot of that with players. I tried not to overstay my welcome, and I tried not to go after the same people too often. But uh, I did some additional phone calls and Zoom calls with the pitching coach, with the hitting coach, with the manager from time to time throughout the year, just to get some stuff that nobody else is going to have. And you try to make the best use of your time and their time as possible and stockpile as much information as you can so it carries you for a couple of days or a week or two. But it was hard this year. And for somebody like me, for whom preparation is so critical, it was a huge challenge. Huge challenge, I'm sure, and for you and Dave Van Horn trying to come up with different ways, because uh, you always mentioned as well, you don't want to have the same thing that Dave has going into the ball game. So I'm sure that was a big part of it as well, and that's why you were able to reach out to so many of those people, I'm sure. No question, and that's why I do my own statistical stuff on a daily basis. I, I like to find different angles. I like to ask questions. I like to find the answers to those questions, and I want those answers to inspire the next question. I like going down rabbit holes, and uh, you never know where they may lead, whether it's with the Marlins or with the team you're playing on a nightly basis. And That's part of keeping it fresh over 60 games, over 162, or when you play the Atlanta Braves 19 times a season, you want to have something different about Johan Camargo in game 19 than you had in game 16, uh, or Ronald Acuna Jr., whoever 
whatever it may be. So uh, that's a big part of the job that I really enjoy. For me, that's the primary part of the job is the preparation. Sitting down at 7-10 every night and broadcasting the game is the easy part. It's like the reward. I remember Roger Clemens years ago saying the fifth day for him was the easy day. It's all the work on days one through four that got him ready to pitch on the fifth day. You go out and pitch, you have a good time. Calling the game for me is the fun and easy part, but it's all the homework you do leading up to it that uh, really for me is the biggest part of the job. How exciting was it? Because the Marlins, obviously such a, a young team, a team that's building and has had so many bad years, and, it, and it's tough to call a full season, six months, 162, when you're not very good, especially in those late months. But here we are, 60-game season. You know, they're, they're fighting for postseason, uh, postseason birth. They get to the playoffs. Just from a broadcasting standpoint, how excited was it for you guys to, to have that team and what they're able to do this year? It was a lot of fun, and for me, it was a great change of pace. I've been here since 2008. And 08 and 09 were very good seasons, uh, 80, I think 88 wins, 87 wins, second place both years, in the hunt late. But this team hasn't had a winning record since the 2009 season. It hasn't sniffed the playoffs since then, even with all the great players who were here individually in the years since. So to watch this thing build over the course of the last three years since the new ownership group took over and to see things begin to play out, the way we've been explaining to people we think and we hope they're going to was very rewarding this season. It certainly made it easier to get up in the morning, easier to go to the ballpark every day, made the broadcasts more fun on a night-in-night-out basis. But now they've raised the bar, and you go into 2021 with expectations. They're a lot higher than they were in 2020. So it'll be interesting to see how they deal with expectations all of a sudden going into next year. And you mentioned the ownership change, and I grew up a Yankee fan, so I grew up a big Jeter guy, and I know Rogers. Oh, he had played for the Yankees? <laughs> yeah. I forgot about that. I always have in my mind the Bob Shepard number two, Derek Jeter. But <laughs> what, in terms of the expectations, we know the expectations Derek has for the team and, and building a winning culture. But how about for the broadcast? Has he talked to you guys about what his expectations are on, on TV and radio? No, he hasn't. Uh, we've had him on the air several times. We talked to him off the air uh, with some regularity, but we haven't really talked about the broadcast specifically with Derek at any point. Uh, I think he's pretty locked in on so many other things. Uh, he's overseeing both the business side and the baseball side. It surprises a lot of people to learn that he's in the office every single day. And this pandemic year is a little bit different, but under normal circumstances, he's there first thing in the morning. He's there through the last out every night. He's occasionally in the clubhouse. He's on field he's behind the scenes he's in the community uh this is a guy who is fully invested in what he's doing now that hasn't necessarily translated onto the broadcasting side he's got a vice president who oversees broadcasting who we communicate with on a regular basis but it's been fun watching Derek come in here and try to transform the culture not trying to turn the marlins into the yankees you can't do that but there are things that great teams like the yankees do on the field and off the field in the front office I was lucky enough to be a part of that with the Boston Red Sox during my time there and to be uh, a part of that culture, immersed in that, and to learn a lot over those years. Uh, and frankly, it had been a lot different here until this new ownership group came in and, and took over. They've raised the bar of expectations. Uh, they've set the standard very high. And it's tough to, to start where they started, on and off the field, as large as the holes were, uh, to try to dig out from under that. But really, for me... To get to the playoffs in year three is a heck of an accomplishment. And I think it surprised a lot of people, certainly around baseball. It had to even surprise some people internally, even though they've talked about having high expectations on the inside. But uh, it's exciting to see the plan they laid out begin to play out, and they haven't deviated from it in any way. And again, now, though, they've got some expectations, and the pressure gets ratcheted up a little bit, as now people are going to expect this team to be in the hunt again, you'd like to think, in 2021. 
Well, that's in 2021. Let's take a look at your journey, uh, kind of going back in time. Of course, you are a South Florida native. Uh, there wasn't a major league team at the time when you were growing up. So what got you so attracted to baseball at an early age? You know, I started playing baseball. I, I was never a big kid. I was never going to play football. I was never going to play basketball. I fell in love with playing baseball. wasn't very good at it, but I enjoyed playing it in the backyard, in the side yard, the front yard, playing Little League uh, with friends, with family members. Uh, but more than anything, I, I just fell in love watching the game on television at a time when there wasn't a lot of baseball on TV. This was before ESPN even. Uh, growing up with the NBC Game of the Week on Saturday afternoons, you'd have Mel Allen this week in baseball at 1230. You'd have the Game of the Week on Saturday afternoon. Growing up in Miami at that time, Channel 6, the local independent station, would carry Yankees games every Tuesday night. And one of the local radio stations, WIOD, had all the Yankees games, all 162. And occasionally, if the Yankees weren't playing, they'd play an Orioles game or a Red Sox game. So I grew up listening to baseball on the radio when I wasn't watching it on TV. Uh, I devoured every baseball article or book that I could find. And that's how I grew to love reading, was reading about baseball, reading biographies of Mo Berg and Lou Gehrig and the history of the game and collecting baseball cards and uh, probably like you guys, turning the volume down on the TV at a certain point and broadcasting the game in my bedroom with my baseball cards laid out in front of me. <laughs> if the Red Sox are playing the Yankees, my Red Sox cards on one side, my Yankees cards on the other side, so I had statistics and biographical information. Uh, and that's how I started in my bedroom. So uh, playing it, watching it, listening to it, uh, we had University of Miami baseball down here, which is very big and remains very popular. And I practically lived out at Mark Light Stadium watching the Canes during their season. I used to go to baseball camp at the University of Miami every summer. Uh, and then we'd had spring training down here as well. The Miami, uh, the Orioles were at Miami Stadium. The Yankees were up in Fort Lauderdale. We'd occasionally make trips in the summer to the Northeast and go to Yankee Stadium or go see different ballparks. And baseball just was always my thing. And I love sports, and I love particularly college sports, college football, college basketball. I enjoy the NFL, the NBA. But baseball has always been, for me, head and shoulders above everything else. Uh, and at a young age, I, I realized I was never going to get there as a player. I might not reach the big leagues as a player, but you know what? Maybe there's another way to get there. And fortunately, it's worked out for me. Certainly has in broadcasting, and for college, you end up going to Northwestern, one of the premier journalism and broadcasting schools in the country. Just when you walked in those gates at Evanston, was kind of baseball broadcasting on your mind at the start, or did that evolve kind of over time there? You know what? It wasn't broadcast necessarily. I went there to study journalism, and when I was in high school, it was in an era where you didn't have radio or television opportunities in high schools like you do today. You didn't have internet opportunities to broadcast games. So while I loved watching and listening on TV and radio, uh, I thought my way to the big leagues would be as a writer because that's where I had the most experience. Uh, I had interned at the Miami Herald when I was in high school. I had been an editor at my high school newspaper. So I went to Northwestern to study journalism. But during New Student Week of freshman year, I saw signs around campus. They were auditioning for WNUR Sports, the sports department of the student radio station. And I figured, look, I've called World Series games in my bedroom already, so i got to be as qualified as anybody. So I auditioned for the student radio station, and from the very beginning of freshman year, got involved there. And over the course of four years, made some incredible friends. And we traveled around the Big Ten calling football, basketball, and baseball games. I did women's basketball as well. Did a talk show on Sunday nights. Got some great experiences. Met a lot of people. Certainly made a lot of mistakes. But it gave me a tape coming out of college, which was so critical. Do you remember some of those stories from some of the first broadcasts you had at WNUR, whether it's a football game or a basketball game that, that stand out to you that are really good college memories? 
I remember a lot of technical issues back in those days. I remember doing a game at the University of Iowa where our equipment crapped out on us. And we literally had a, an old telephone. I, I don't know if you guys even know what an old telephone would look like, but we would pass the telephone back and forth. Uh, the color broadcaster and myself uh, just in, in calling the game, doing things like that, plugging into fax machines and using the fax machine phone to, to broadcast games at times when you'd show up in a road city and the booth just wasn't ready for the student radio station for whatever reason and you had to do what you had to do. Uh, but more than anything, I remember driving around the Midwest and often in snowstorms during basketball season and fishtailing off the road and uh, seeing your life flash before your eyes and, and making some great friends. I remember getting back to the, the radio station, uh, you know, in the middle of the night after a long road trip. I couldn't get into the station. Everything was locked up. And, and there's a button you push where whoever the overnight DJ is sees this light flash and he's supposed to come up the steps from the basement and let you in. They wouldn't do it. And. Uh, somehow, at that time, I was small enough to crawl between the bars and this little window that took me out onto a stairwell that took me down into the basement and, and got me into the building. Uh, and every time I walk by Annie Mae Swift Hall to this day, I look at that window and those bars, and I show it to my kids. I say, how the heck did Daddy fit through there? Uh, you know, those are the kind of things you remember. I was able to work with some people who've gone on to have success in the industry. You know, Northwestern really, historically, has not been a broadcasting school as much as it's been a journalism school. And only in recent years has it really put more of an emphasis on broadcasting. But I did work with some people, Josh Lewin, uh, a longtime friend of mine from freshman year at Northwestern, who over the years has broadcast for uh, most recently UCLA, does uh, basketball and football at UCLA, did the San Diego Chargers before they moved to L.A., did the New York Mets, uh, did the Texas Rangers. Uh, Dave Revson, who's the lead studio host at Big Ten Network, uh, was a colleague of mine at WNUR and remains a very close friend to this day. So there are a handful of people in the business I worked with in college. But, uh, you know, it's it's the little things, the, the silly stories. It's, uh, you know, having the bet that uh, when you're in uh, the big campus hangout restaurant on Friday night for homecoming in Bloomington, Indiana, that as soon as the waitress comes over to this packed restaurant and asks, can I take your order, the four or five was there to call the football game the next day. They would all stand up on our seats and sing Go You Northwestern, the Northwestern fight song, just stuff like that. Uh, you know, playing playing touch football in the parking lot outside the Red Roof Inn. I still have a scar on my hand, and I still hold a grudge against the guy who pushed me down. Uh, you know, this is 30-plus years ago, but those are the things you remember. And how about that first job out of college? I know you start in baseball Rochester, right, in a, at the AAA level. So how do you take that step to Rochester, and what are some of the things that you're doing there to improve your craft? Well, I didn't begin broadcasting in Rochester. When I initially went to Rochester, it was as an unpaid intern. And because of my experience in writing and in broadcasting, it made me a natural to do the PR for the teams. So I started out uh, as an intern doing the PR on a daily basis, writing the game notes, coordinating all the media interactions for the players, uh, designing and editing the media guide and the game program and the sales brochures, things like that. But because I wasn't getting paid and because I had bills to pay, uh, I made mascot appearances. This is R.W. Homer, $25 a pop. And uh, I actually have – I'll show you uh, – if I can dig it out here at some point on my phone. I have a picture of R.W. Homer I keep on my phone that I'll often show students that I talk to, high schoolers or even elementary school students and college kids, saying, you know, in the beginning, you got to pay your dues. And you shouldn't think of it as paying your dues, though. You should think about it as as just learning and developing and having fun and not worrying about where you're going to be a year from now or five years from now or 25 years from now. You do what you've got to do. And for me, that meant dressing up as this giant baseball, and my arms came out the side, I would see out the hat on top of the baseball. I wore baseball pants and these huge red clown shoes. 
And this is in an old 1927 ballpark at the time in Rochester, New York, Silver Stadium, where there were these huge ramps up down behind home plate and down the lines. And kids realized if they knocked R.W. off his feet right at the top of the ramp, it was a long way down until he hit the chain link fence. So I spent a good part of that season very black and blue and trying to avoid children. But, you know, those are the things you look back on and you remember. And it wasn't like, when am I going to get out of Rochester? How can I get out? I loved every minute of it. I loved that I was working in a very small front office with a lot of people just out of college who, for the most part, didn't have girlfriends, didn't have wives, didn't have families. We just immersed ourselves in what we were doing on a daily basis. We loved every minute of it. Now, that turned in eventually to the full-time PR job and the number two broadcaster role, then the lead broadcaster role. So as time went on, uh, from a broadcasting standpoint, it was just a matter of getting reps and doing games uh, and learning how to prepare and learning how to ask questions, when and where, what's the right way to ask a tough question. Uh, And you learn by trial and error. And that's why those college years and the minor league years for me were so valuable, because I know I made a lot of mistakes, and I know people have to be very patient with me at times, but that's how you develop. That's how you grow. And uh, I tell people all the time who want to get to the big leagues in whatever area, maybe it's PR, maybe it's marketing, whatever it is, broadcasting, you know, everybody wants to jump right to the big leagues. But I tell people, spend some years in the minor leagues where you really get immersed in doing all the different jobs. I sold advertising. We all pulled tarp. I made appearances in the community. Like I said, mascot appearances, marching in Fourth of July parades uh, in that mascot suit, marching two miles in one direction during this parade. Then the parade ends. And I got to march two miles back to my car. Everybody's gone about their business on this 4th of July afternoon. There's picnics and and football's getting thrown around. And here's R.W. Homer trudging through the streets of Charlotte Beach, New York, you know, walking back two miles. You can't take the suit off. You can't destroy the the image for the kids. So, uh, you know, it's things like that that you never forget. But, uh, you know, without those experiences, I would not have gotten to where I am today. And I certainly wouldn't appreciate where I am today nearly as much. And I was looking for pictures for you for our graphic for this show, and it looked like you were in a tuxedo a lot on opening day. Were you pulling a John Rochester. Miller there? T- yeah, tuxedo, yeah. Yeah, that was a tradition. That was a tradition in Rochester. Everybody in the front office wore tuxedos on opening day. It was a big deal. And uh, it was usually a tuxedo with an overcoat over it because it was usually 20 degrees if you were lucky. Uh, in fact, opening day 1996 in Rochester was snowed out. We were supposed to play the Charlotte Knights. And it was a big day because Levon Hernandez was going to make his American debut for the Charlotte Knights. He had been signed by the Florida Marlins at that time. Uh, the game got snowed out. Uh, the next day, we played a day-night doubleheader. We were supposed to play a doubleheader with Levon pitching in one of the games. Game two had to be postponed because all the pipes froze in the old ballpark. And the concession stands couldn't run. The bathrooms couldn't run. So we played one game, not the second. Wound up asking a, a friend out to dinner. And uh, here we are now. What is it? Uh, 24 years later, with three kids and a dog, and uh, that snow out turned out to be a good time. Again, it, it's the kind of thing that you look back and say, "Oh God, I hated getting snowed out on opening day in Rochester," but you make the most of it. You find a wife, and uh, those are some great times. <laughs> That's turned out certainly very well for you. And I know something else that turned out really well for you was uh, your move to San Diego. What can you tell us about that opportunity and what you learned in your early years with the Padres? After five years with the Red Wings, I went out to join the San Diego Padres. Larry Lucchino had been the president of the Baltimore Orioles, and Charles Steinberg, who's a mentor of mine, had been Larry's right-hand man. And I met Charles initially when he was with the Orioles. Uh, And again, I think this is a great lesson. I didn't know Charles. Charles came to town for an exhibition game when the Orioles came to Rochester. And like the players, I didn't realize it, but I was being scouted. 
And uh, Charles saw the game notes that I did. Charles came on the broadcast with me for a couple of innings that night, sat in the booth and watched what I was doing. I didn't know that Roland Hemond, who at that time was the general manager of the Orioles, had told Charles, hey, there's this kid I know at AAA in Rochester. And whenever I go to town, he's the nicest guy in the world. He's got great information for me. He sends me packets of info in the mail at the end of the season every year. He's really helpful. You got to keep an eye on this guy. So I didn't know it at the time, but I was being scouted by Charles Steinberg, just like a player might have been being scouted. And that's another thing I tell young broadcasters, young front office executives all the time. You never know who's watching. And now in this age of satellite radio and Internet radio, you never know who somewhere in the country might be listening to you or somewhere in the world might be listening to you or watching what you're doing. So that initial contact eventually led to my joining Larry and Charles and others out in San Diego, initially as the director of public relations, where my assistant was this young kid named Theo Epstein. And so so Theo and I go all the way back to those years in San Diego. We were the PR team for the Padres for one year before Theo started law school and at the same time transitioned into baseball operations with the Padres. And I'm not sure what's happened to him in the years since, but I think he's done pretty well for himself. Uh, but we worked together in San Diego. Eventually, as time went on in San Diego, what we found was, you know, there's only so much you can do in traditional media. Uh, there are only so many stories you can get the San Diego Union Tribune and local TV stations to tell. So we decided we need to tell our own stories. And we started all sorts of television programming that we created and produced that got me back into broadcasting by hosting and reporting for some of these shows. And when they needed somebody to pinch hit on a radio broadcast here and there, I was the guy. When they needed somebody to pinch hit on TV, I was the guy. And eventually, by the time I left San Diego, I'd moved back into the radio booth on a full-time basis. Uh, my last year there was 2002. At that point... Lucino and Steinberg and Theo and Sam Kennedy and Mike D and a lot of other names that people who follow sports might know had left the Padres, went to the Red Sox. Uh, they invited me to join them in Boston. Initially, again, in a PR role as vice president of communications. But again, same thing. We started telling our own stories. And I started pinch hitting on broadcasts on TV and radio and doing minor league games on TV on Ness and things like that. And again, that got me back into the booth on a full-time basis in Boston my final year. Uh, before I came back home to South Florida at the end of the 2007 season to join the Marlins radio team full-time. How much did that experience in the front office in PR help you as a broadcaster? And especially because we just talked about the Marlins haven't been great over the, over the last few years, and now they're getting better. But it is a way to take the positive out of everything because you were a professional in public relations. Does it does it help? Does that all that transfer over? No question. I feel like I have a very unique understanding of how the operation works. I've sat in sales meetings and marketing meetings. I've written game notes. I've been the guy pitching stories to the media. Uh, I've been the guy trying to make bad things look a little bit better. Uh, so I, I think I know a little bit about messaging and what's in the best interest of the organization. What would an owner want to hear me say at a time like this? How do you best connect with fans? Uh, you know, I, I've sat in on draft day. I understand how the draft works inside and out. I was the only person with Theo Epstein in his office in the basement of Fenway Park on July 31st, 2004, when he had minutes to decide before the deadline, am I going to trade Nomar Garciaparra? Am I going to make this deal that might help me win a World Series for the first time in 86 years, but will entail sending an iconic franchise player to the Chicago Cubs? I was the only person in Theo's office. He's pulling his hair out at that moment. Uh, so I've experienced a lot of things I would say the typical broadcaster hasn't. And from a PR and messaging standpoint, I think it's hugely beneficial. You know, I was part of a campaign to uh, get the referendum passed to build the new ballpark, Petco Park in San Diego. So from a political standpoint, I understand that sort of thing. 
uh, you know, from a medical standpoint, I, I understand why why things are done, why announcements are often delayed. Uh, you know, it's sometimes the way you say things matter. And because of my experience in the front office, I think I'm able to be very precise with my words as things are happening, whether it's on the field or off the field. I have an idea generally what the general manager is thinking, uh, what some of the challenges may be. I've sat alone in manager's offices after games, before the media comes in, and you get a sense for things. You, you feel things, you experience things that now, to this day, make it easier for me to ask tough questions after a, a devastating loss or at a bad time. So, uh, you know, I was lucky to be around a lot of great people on the field, in managerial offices, in, in coaches' rooms, uh, in front offices, and I've picked up a little something I hope from all of them over the years. But uh, I think all those experiences combined have me in a way, uniquely qualified to do what I've been doing for these last many years. And I do want to circle back. What was a young Theo Epstein like when he was your assistant? And, and then you move on to Boston. He's there as well. Do you still keep in touch and, and talk about those those early days for both of you? He uh, he was brilliant then. He's brilliant now. He's brilliant <laughs> then. And you knew whatever he decided to do, he was going to be really, really good at. And to this day, I think there are a lot of mountains for Theo to climb outside of baseball, whether it's uh, in community service, philanthropic work, in politics, whatever he might decide to do. Uh, he, he's a brilliant guy. And we're not in very close contact these days. You know, I'll see him at Wrigley Field when we go up there. Uh, you know, if he makes a trip down to Miami, you get a chance to say hello and catch up a little bit. It was a long time ago, though, and we both come a long way and our uh, lives have changed a lot. But it, it was a great opportunity to, to work with him. Uh, he was a little bit younger, but had a little bit more time in the big leagues at that time than I did. So I learned a lot from him, certainly. And it's been fun to watch his progress and his growth. And, uh, you know, like many, you kind of wonder what's going to be next for Theo with all these rumblings coming out of Chicago. There's time there might be winding down. We'll see. Uh, to me, he's got another chapter two to write still. Yeah, he certainly does. And uh, we're going to make Kyle feel terrible here because I want to ask about the 2004 ALCS and uh, the World Series. And, uh, you know, from my experience uh, in Jacksonville, kind of being the PR guy, plus uh, also the baseball broadcaster, I know how overwhelming that can feel sometimes, making sure you fulfill all these requests. And I know that was your full-time role in Boston during that time. But when you look back at those that crazy ALCS, the amazing comeback against the Yankees, and then the Red Sox first World Series in 86 years, what was that time like for you just trying to manage all of that and make sure you're able to fulfill all these interview requests because now it's going beyond the sports world this was like a global story you're exactly right and i was dealing with barbara walters and katie couric and queer eye for the straight guy i mean you name it uh, we we had everybody in the mix in 2003 and 2004 into 2005 boston truly was the hub of the baseball universe at that time and the red sox yankees rivalry was as intense and as insane as it's ever been. They played 52 times over those two years, 2003 and 2004. The two teams went 26 and 26 against each other. 19 regular season games both years, seven playoff games both years, 26 and 26. And I'd have to go back and look this up, but they might have scored the exact same number of runs in the 52 games, or somebody might have had a one-run advantage. But that's the way that rivalry was. And for those two historic franchises to go at it the way they did, 03 was my first year in Boston. And so to lose in Game 7 on the Aaron Boone home run was absolutely devastating, gut-wrenching, professionally, certainly the, the worst day, the worst night of my career. 
And that's what made 2004 so special when the Red Sox were able to do what they did uh, in falling in that hole three games to none in the American League Championship Series, losing 19 to eight at Fenway Park in game three. Uh, I mean, it doesn't get any worse than that. And somehow coming back and winning four in a row. Uh, and I'll say this, in many respects, some people say the World Series after that would be anticlimactic. But remember, the Yankees in 2003 won that incredible ALCS against the Red Sox on the Boone home run in extra innings in Game 7, and then went out and laid an yeah. egg in the World Series against the Marlins. You still got to go out there against, in 04, it was a very, very good St. Louis Cardinals team. And not only did the Red Sox win that World Series, not only did they sweep it, they never trailed for a single inning in that World Series against the Cardinals. So they took care of business against the Yankees. They exercised the demons. And yet all that is only a footnote in history if they didn't go out and take care of business against St. Louis, which they were able to do. So that was an amazing time. Such such remarkable memories. Uh, and the, the duck boat ride and the parade after they won the World Series in 04 and did it again in 2007. But nothing can replicate doing it that first time. What that meant to so many people. And, you know, you'd see all the stories and the, the penance uh, left at grave sites because my grandfather didn't live to see this moment or my father didn't live to experience what this is all about the heartfelt stories the people you know now i can die happy uh it meant a lot to a lot of people and you know every year somebody wins a world series but it's not always the same and you know obviously in 2016 with the cubs it was very very special after 108 years for that fan base and what the red sox were able to do in 2004 and particularly the way they did it coming back against the yankees to win that alcs uh, and then to sweep the world series that's another historic franchise was a very special thing to be a part of. And to go through that with people like Pedro Martinez and Jason Veritek and David Ortiz and Manny Ramirez and, uh, you know, go on and on down the line of, of these legendary talents and personalities, uh, Kevin Millar. It was a lot of fun. And, and I'm sure a lot of... LCS, Roger, huh? I had to. We can to, talk about no. more if you want, Kyle. <laughs> I would play more I stories. I was a 12-year-old kid at the time. Just <laughs> watching, that, just watching things slowly fade. Was it Kevin Brown in Game 7 that pitched in 04? And, and the he game had nothing left. Right away. <laughs> I, I was with Brownie in San Diego in 1998. Yeah. And the Padres went to the World Series. Got to know him well. He actually came back from Marlins' event a few years ago, and we talked about that game in 2004. And he admitted, he said, I had nothing. I knew I mean, my arm was shot. I had nothing left. But I went out there to compete. Then Javier Vasquez came in after him, allowed the Grand Slam to oh, yeah. Johnny Damon. We can keep going on this, Kyle, if you want, because i got plenty more stories. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, just one quick aside. I mean, how much sleep did you get during that time? And it's not like it slowed down after the World Series at all, because that whole offseason was Red Sox dominated as well. That's the thing. In a market like that, particularly at a time like that, uh, it was absolutely insane. And actually, as a PR director, I took it as a challenge to myself. I wanted something in the newspapers about the Red Sox 365 days a year. And it doesn't happen in many, if any, major league markets that, uh, you know, on December 23rd, there's something about the. It might be in the real estate section. It might be in the gossip column. Uh, it might not be in the sports section even. But uh, we worked really hard to make sure people were thinking about and talking about the Red Sox 365 days a year. After that 04 season, they had the World Series trophy tour. The Red Sox were the first team. It's happened a lot now since, but the Red Sox were the first team to take the World Series trophy to literally every city and town in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And our last stop was the island of Cuddyhunk, just off the coast near Martha's Vineyard. And we had to helicopter the trophy into Cuddyhunk, uh, where just a handful of people live. And it was a really cool event that we had. I was a part of not all the events, but that one and some of the big ones. Uh, it's one of those things you'll never forget.
Well, a great World Series championship there. And then in 2007, again, the Red Sox, with a similar cast of characters, is able to win the World Series. And you actually got to be on the call, not only for a World Series, but that. speaking of the ALCS, that was a tremendous ALCS comeback against the Cleveland Indians that year. Just That's what right. was that postseason experience like for you for the first time on the air? Right. I wasn't on the air in 2004. I was in 2007 with the Red Sox, working with Joe Castiglione, who's a Red Sox Hall of Famer. And He's been a Ford Frick Award finalist, needs to win that award one of these years. I've been lucky. I worked with a Frick Award winner, Jerry Coleman, in San Diego. I work now with a Frick Award winner, Dave Van Horn, with the Marlins. And one of these days, I'll say I worked with a third, Joe Castiglione, with Boston. Uh, Joe is such a great broadcaster, such a great friend. Uh, just to be his wingman for that experience is really special. Uh, but you're right, went into Cleveland, fell behind three games to one in that ALCS. And that was a really, really good Indians team with CeCe Zabathia and Fausto Carmona at the top of the rotation and Travis Hafner and uh, guys like that in the lineup. Uh, and somehow the Red Sox came back and pulled that one out uh, and then ran into the hottest team in baseball, the Rockies in the World Series. The Rockies won 21 of 22 games going into the World Series. And they had swept through the postseason, the National League, but swept Colorado as well. So I got to two World Series with the Red Sox and never experienced a loss in any World Series game, <laughs> which was kind of cool. But it is special being on the microphone. Um, I think one call that I don't know that it was a great call even, but that I'll always remember because the response I got to it was uh, a Dustin Pedroia home run that essentially iced game seven of the ALCS in 2004. And I remember getting letters from people at a time when people wrote letters and didn't just send emails or tweets you uh, about pulling over on the highway. They were so excited by this moment, by this call that I was a part of. Uh, a big Mike Lowell home run that essentially iced game four of the World Series that uh, John Lester pitched in one a year after undergoing treatment for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Just an amazing story at Coors Field in Denver. Uh, so, you know, it was nothing matches with the Red Sox do in 2004, winning for the first time in 86 years, getting that monkey off the back. But at the time, they said, look, anybody can win one World Series. We want to win two. We want to win three. We want to win four. So to do it a second time, just four years later, uh, three seasons later, what was a really big deal in 2007. And they've gone on and won a couple without me since then. Uh, for the longest time, I could say they hadn't won anything since I left. <laughs> but then they finally got it going a little bit again. But now they're they're back in the tank. So uh, <laughs> th those are wonderful memories. It was a remarkable five years going to work at Fenway Park every single day, which is life-changing. I remember at one point, late in my first year with the Red Sox, Johnny Pesky, the legendary Red Sox, lifetime baseball man, very late in his life, was still in the clubhouse every day for home games, would dress out every single day for home games, would be on the field hitting fungos every day for home games. He walked up to me and said, hey, kid, how you doing? You enjoying this gig? And I said, Johnny, I love it, but I got to be honest with you, it's been a year. I still get chills every time I walk into this ballpark. And he said, kid, I've been here 66 years, and I still get chills walking into this ballpark every day. So that tells you how special Fenway Park is. And to have been a part of uh, something like that was very, very unique and very special. What was it like to call a World Series from a broadcasting standpoint? You know, what's your energy like? Because the atmosphere, I'm sure, is incredible. And calling a World Series in, in all the places like Boston, where you know a lot of people are listening, a lot of people are going to, you know, play back your calls for a long time. How do you try and calm yourself down before a series like that? I know you have an emotional postseason leading up to that, but you know the World Series is always different. So how do you try and calm yourself down for that? You know, the funny thing is, with a team like the Red Sox that plays in sold-out ballparks at home every single night and on the road almost every single night, when we got to the postseason, 
it didn't feel all that different, really. Uh, and now, from a broadcast standpoint, I tend to get excited, you know, leading up to a broadcast. But as soon as the light goes on, as soon as you start, uh, I pretty much settle in. And every game for me feels very much like like any other game. I, I try to approach every game the same way. I do the same work going in. Uh, and really, I don't think you change a whole lot. Uh, you understand the magnitude of the moment. And, you know, maybe there are things you might get into on a Tuesday night in June that uh, you're not going to waste people's time with in game four of the World Series. But, uh, you know, the, the game stands on its own when you get to October, especially when you get to the World Series. But I don't really think I changed a whole lot. I do remember looking around and making the conscious point uh, of making sure I will always remember what this picture looks like. Because you never know if you're going to get there ever again. You might not. Uh, and I tell people that all the time. You know, a lot of young people working in the business, uh, friends who in various capacities have gotten a postseason player to Super Bowls. And I always tell them it's going to go by so quickly. But at some point, stop, look around, remember what it smells like, remember what it sounds like. Take a mental picture. And it's great to take pictures on your iPhone, but take a mental picture. They'll be with you forever. Uh, and just soak in the moment a little bit. And I was glad that I was conscious of doing that calling that World Series in 2007. And I'll say this, to this day, every day, World Series or not, spring training game, when I stand up for the national anthem in the radio booth, I look around the ballpark every day and I reflect back on some of the stuff we've been talking about and the fact that right now I'm doing what it was I wanted to do when I was a little kid. And I'm doing it for my hometown team even now, which didn't exist when I was a little kid. But uh, I try to take that moment just to calm myself down a little bit, but also to make sure I always maintain that perspective and that enthusiasm uh, for what I'm doing on a nightly basis. I'm sure the imagery of you in the in the giant baseball mascot costume, that brings perspective <laughs> yeah. right away to calling a World Series. Uh, I'm sure that's one of the things. You know what? I just remembered, by the way, I, I didn't get to my phone quickly enough, but I do have a picture right here behind me on my bookshelf. If you can see this, I don't know how well you can see okay. this. There he is. Yep, That's we got me it. on the field in Rochester, New York, in 1990. So uh, <laughs> from that, and it's funny. Series championship. Uh, exactly. I, I left Rochester at the end of the 1996 season. In 1997, they moved into a brand new ballpark. So I was there to close down the old park, Silver Stadium. And when they left, the general manager, a longtime friend of mine, called and said, "Hey, is there anything you want before we knock Silver Stadium down?" I said, "I need that R.W. Homer suit. I want to keep that thing forever." And it vanished somewhere, it disappeared. Somebody took it, and they never found it. So uh, at one point, years later, I had this conversation with a columnist in Rochester. He put out an APB in his column for the R.W. Homer suit, and to this day, they still haven't found it. Still haven't found it, huh? One uh, of these, they probably sold on especially, yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned, I mean, you've worked with an incredible, uh, the, the people that you worked with, they're, they're incredible broadcasters and Hall of Famers, Dave Van Horn, Jerry Coleman, Ted Leitner, Joe Castiglione. What's the common thread that you get from all of them that you try to take away for your own career? They love the game. They love being at the ballpark. There's nowhere else they would rather be. And no matter how long they've done it, they don't take any day at the ballpark for granted. Uh, that's, I would say, big picture number one. Number two is the kind of people they are to last as long as they lasted or have lasted in the game. You've got to be a person that people like and people respect and, and to see the parade of luminaries coming into the booth on a nightly basis to say hello to Jerry Coleman when he's in town or to catch up with Joe Castiglione or to see Dave for the first time in a while uh, is really something as well. Uh, you know, it's, it's not just the broadcasters they are. It's the type of people that they are. 
And, uh, you know, I, I learned a lot from it, the way they treat people. Uh, and and that's something that I, I've focused on over the course of my career as well. And a lesson you try to pass on to other people. It's great to have a great voice. It's great to be a great broadcaster with memorable calls and a, a home run call that people want to emulate, whatever it is. But that's not what, at the end of the day, defines you as a broadcaster. And with all these guys you mentioned, it's the same thing. They're all people who, uh, you know, you would trust with your life, who, who are very close friends, who love the game, who are liked and respected universally. And uh, while their styles on the air, in many cases, are very different, uh, that common thread, I think, brings them all together. And something I noticed when I first shadowed you and Dave in the booth, uh, it was interesting. I think it was a spring training game. You guys had all of your notes, all of your preparation ready to go. And you mentioned you do all of it on your own. And I think the only time I saw you or Dave look at the Marlins game notes was just to see who the starting pitcher was for tomorrow, what time the game started. It was kind of late in the game. Uh, So kind of with that, what's important for you in your preparation for a series and how different is it from what you may see in the game notes? Uh, What's your total process like getting ready for broadcast? I want to talk about things that I think are interesting, and I hope the listeners will then think they're interesting as well. Uh, you know, numbers are great. Numbers can help tell a story, but you don't want to overwhelm people with numbers. You want to have anecdotal things to share. You want to have stories. You want to be able to say, Brian Anderson told me this before the game. You want to see something happen in a game and say, I was just talking about this with Miguel Rojas before the game today. Or back in 1999, I was sitting at Tony Gwynn's locker. And Tony said something to me then that makes sense in this moment in 2020. Or I was talking pitching with Kurt Schilling or Pedro Martinez, and they said something, and it applies right now. Uh, So I do a ton of work on a daily basis, and it goes on year-round because you never know when you're going to stumble on an article that you want to clip and save. And at some point, we're going to play the Kansas City Royals, and I'm going to want to remember this particular thing uh, about Salvador Perez or whoever it may be. Uh, So the preparation is ongoing 24-7, 365. Where I think I've made the biggest strides over the years, though, is realizing you can do all this work, but it doesn't mean you have to use all of it or or even 6% of it. For me, it's a matter of knowing I'm prepared to take the exam at the end of the day. And I've done all the preparation I can possibly do. And you go in feeling comfortable because, you know, under any scenario, you're going to be ready with something to say statistically or anecdotally that's going to make sense. So um, you want to keep it fresh. You want to keep it interesting. I want to go into a game against Atlanta Braves knowing as much about the Atlanta Braves as I do about the Marlins. I want to be able to add perspective to things going on. I want to add context. When you talk about broadcasting for a team that hasn't been very good in recent years, even though the team might be 25 games under 500 and not going to the playoffs, there's a reason why tonight's game matters. And there's a reason why tomorrow's game is going to matter. you got to find those reasons. You've got to explain them. You've got to be able to put where this team is tonight in context of the big picture, where it's headed. And you want to share that with listeners. You know, part of it is entertaining listeners. Part of it is educating listeners. Part of it is just sharing a ball game with the listeners in a conversational, comfortable style. So uh, it's a combination of a lot of things. And again, I think it was Doc Emmerich who at one point said, I do all this preparation. I know I'm only going to use probably 5% of it, but I never know which 5% it's going to be. So every night I do it all. And, uh, you know, it just makes me feel comfortable going into the broadcast. And uh, as like I said, as time has gone on, I've realized you don't need to force it all in. And if I don't use a great note I have about Acuna tonight, you know what? There's game three of the series tomorrow. We play the Braves again two months from now. Maybe I'll use it next year. I've got stories that I've been carrying around in my notes or in the back of my mind for years that I've never used. I've got some unbelievable stuff 
in the city of Philadelphia that one of these days during a Marlins Phillies game I'm going to get to that had literally been on a five by eight card in my notes for probably a decade that I've never had the opportunity to get in. And you just don't want to force it. You want to wait for the right spot. So, uh, you know, I think part of it is having the feel for what the right time and place is and understanding that the ninth inning of a 1-1 game isn't the time to force in this great note that I researched. And maybe it, it vanishes into thin air if I don't use it tonight. Maybe it's not evergreen, but it's 1-1 in the ninth inning. It's not the time right now with the winning man at second base. So to me, that's part of the maturation that I've undergone as a broadcaster over the years, you know, knowing when enough is enough, when it's time to just sit back and talk about the game. You talk, Kyle, about the difference of calling a World Series game. You don't need to tell everybody's life story in the middle of a World Series game. Let's worry about where the base runners are, where the defense is set up, uh, who's up in the bullpen. It's game three of the World Series right now. That's what people are tuned in for. And I think remembering that at all times is critical. And I've seen you fill out your scorebook, and then the last 45 minutes before a game, uh, it was always fascinating to see you write down furiously on post-it notes and kind of have those quick hitters that it seemed like helped your mind just be able to tell stories quickly, get notes out there quickly. So just kind of curious what you put on your scorecard, and then what's important to put on those post-it notes you have all around your workspace. One of these years, I'm going to buy stock in the post-it <laughs> company, whoever, 3M, whoever makes post-it notes. I use a lot of post-it notes. I do a lot of different things. I use a lot of five by eight cards. And actually, I've got some stuff I can show you if you want. Sure. Like I said, I don't use a Marlins media guide. I don't use a Braves media guide. I do my own media guide at the start of every season. Uh, and, and what I do in this book is on a, a bunch of five by eight cards, uh, have team notes, have individual player notes, have things looking back at last season, looking ahead to this season. Uh, and, and I can flip a page. And, and if I want to find uh, Corey Dickerson, I'm right on Corey Dickerson, and I've got some notes on Corey Dickerson right here. A lot of this stuff is maybe information I'll use in spring training more than once the season gets started and you get into the day-to-day -day stuff and things begin to change on a daily basis. Uh, but but then what I do on a daily basis is I do use post-it notes, and I'll do all this stuff at home or in the hotel before I go to the ballpark. I'll do a post-it note for every player on both teams. And when I get to the ballpark and get the lineups, I then line them up in the order of the batting order. So uh, here, this is from the last game I called, game three of the National League Division Series against the Braves. Uh, and these were my Marlins notes. You go down the line, John Birdie, Corey Dickerson, Jesus Aguilar, Brian Anderson. Uh, the bench is on the back, lefty hitters, righty hitters. Uh, I'll do the exact same thing for the team we're playing on a nightly basis. I'll do uh, a whole packet of post-it notes on both starting pitchers every day. Uh, this was from the last game. Uh, this was Sixto Sanchez. Uh, and just statistical stuff, little bullet points that I'll look at that will remind me of an anecdote I want to share or something that maybe Sixto mentioned in the pregame Zoom or something that somebody said about Sixto Sanchez. Uh, so I'll have that for the brave starting pitcher as well. I'll have uh, a whole nother set of uh, notes with Marlins and, in this case, Braves notes. Again, post-it notes of, of all shapes and sizes, different colors, uh, and somehow – I find that writing things down make it easier for me to remember them. And that's why I like to have this stuff. And again, I'm not going to use most of it. I know that. But I just feel comfortable with there. I'd feel naked if I didn't have it on a nightly basis. And uh, it, it gets you through the game. And uh, again, one of these days, what I've always said I wanted to do is at the end of the game, go back and literally highlight everything on my notes that I used that night. And I'll probably see, like I said, it might be 5% of it, it might be 1% of it. Uh, and if you do that enough over time, you realize, hey, why do I do this 
every single day? Why do I look up this particular thing on the starting pitcher every single day when I never use it? Uh, and maybe I can be more efficient in my preparation. But uh, and that preparation is critical for me, again, for both teams, for the Marlins, for the Braves. This is a pack I have uh, probably 18 to 25 by 8 cards on the Atlanta Braves. And it's stuff that I update over the course of the season. So it's not all original for every game or for every series, but it's all updated and added to for every game and for every series. And big picture themes are in here and, and histories of the series between the Marlins and the Braves and, and the Braves postseason history, for example, and how they turned the year around and what their postseason drought had been like since 2001 going into this season and uh, history of the Marlins misery at Truist Park in Atlanta and all the walk-off losses they've had. You know, when something comes up, I've got this all in my Braves notes and I've got a pack like this for every team we play. And uh, it keeps me busy, no doubt, preparing for broadcasts on a regular basis. And that leads me right into my question. How do you stay ahead of all your prep? Say at a full 162-game season where you have no days off and you're flying all the time, do you look a few series ahead and say, look, I'm going to knock out the Dodgers because we play them this weekend, or I'm going to knock out the Braves because we play them next week? Like, How do you try to go and figure out what your prep schedule is going to be so everything is done on time? It's hard to do. Uh, it's really hard to do. And remember, at the same time, you're doing the Marlins on a daily basis as well, which is a little bit easier because the team you're around, you know the best. Uh, I try not to work too far ahead because I want to be as current as I possibly can be when we start a series on a Friday night against the Dodgers. I want to talk about the three out of four they just took from the Giants and how they've been playing over the course of the last couple of weeks and what lies ahead for them when they leave Marlins Park. So I want to be as current as possible. Uh, so... I try to work a series or two ahead in terms of in my reading and checking out what the next opponent or two is up to a little bit. So I've got little seeds planted in the back of my head. But generally, the bulk of this work gets done uh, the final day of the series before and the morning and early afternoon of game one of the series against the team. Uh, I work a lot on airplanes. I work a lot in hotel rooms. Uh, on the road, I tend to stay up very late. I get back from the ballpark, try to do as much of my work as possible for the next day. So if I get ahead a little bit before the final game of the series against the Braves, I can spend the whole next day preparing for the next series against the Phillies or whoever it may be. So you make good use of your days off, which really aren't days off. You might not be going to the ballpark, but it's not a day off. Uh, and again, by doing a lot of stuff like this on the computer, some of the skeleton of it is already in there and it's a matter of tweaking and updating and adding some more information but it's a full-time job and you know people who think you just show up at the ballpark at 6 30 and call a game have no idea what you guys do on a daily basis what i do what other major league broadcasters do on a daily basis uh, it's a lot of work and again for me it's a part of the job that i really enjoy if i didn't it would be impossible to do it the way that i do it let me ask you about description and i ask everybody we have on this podcast about radio wise what's the perfect line of, of too much description and enough description for you. Wh where are you on that scale? It's a really good question. Uh, I'm very conscious of the fact that if something happens and I don't mention it, it didn't happen essentially in a ball game. There are times I'll come home from a game and my son will ask me about something that they showed on the TV broadcast that I know nothing about because I'm not watching the TV broadcast. I'm looking somewhere else. I don't have 12 cameras around the ballpark and a producer and a director. So uh, in our booth, we have Dave's two eyes and my two eyes. And if our four eyes collectively don't see something, it didn't happen. Uh, I do like description, though. And I talk a lot uh, with young broadcasters about the difference between a television call and a radio call and how on TV it's just shortstop, one out, 
and or you know first out and I'll, on radio say ground ball to the right of Rojas deep into the hole he's got it plants long throw across the first got him by a step and you know it's a completely different call uh, and I enjoy that description for me that's the art of baseball on the radio and I've done a little bit of TV over the years but I truly prefer the art of having to do it on the radio having to paint that picture night in and night out and now more than ever you know where is the defense and what uh, what's going on in the bullpen or whatever it may be, uh, I really enjoy the challenge of painting that picture and trying to anticipate what's going to happen next. So when I tell you that there are three defenders on the left side and the first base is holding against the runner, that when the hitter hits that next pitch right through the hole on the right side, well, it's obvious you hit it through the hole on the right side because you just set it up like that. Uh, So I enjoy that a lot. Uh, I like to be as descriptive as possible while being as careful as possible the number of words that I use. So you want to say a lot as quickly and as succinctly as possible. I think about that as well. Maybe not doing a great job of that on this show that we're doing here today. But uh, you know, that's part of the challenge, too. You want to be descriptive, but you also want to let things breathe a little bit. And you don't want to go too over the top. Do you love as well the baseball still can surprise you in so many ways? Because with all you've seen from your time in the minor leagues, Padres, Red Sox, Marlins for all these years, there's a familiar beat to it. Sometimes you can kind of tell how an inning's going to go, but still, there's so much that surprises you. I'm sure that's another part of the job you love. So I keep going to the ballpark every day, day after day, year after year. You never know what you're going to see. Uh, you know, I've got my scorebook here, and my partner Dave Van Horn often talks about this. At the start of the season, you've got this blank book. With, with all these empty white pages, and you never know what's going to happen over the course of the next 162 games and how it's all going to get filled in for you. Uh, and that's the fun of it, seeing things that you hadn't thought of before. No matter how many years you've been doing this, no matter how many games you've seen, thousands and thousands of games, something occasionally is going to happen on the field where you say, how do you score that? Or I wonder <laughs> if that's ever happened before in the history of the game. And uh, that's the stuff that really excites me and trying to figure out when was the last time that something like this happened and how do you score that? And, uh, you know, is the umpire right in making the judgment that he just made? Uh, So that is a fun part of it. And every year at the start of the year, I say, I'm going to write down and start a list every time something like that happens. I've never seen that before. And I'd like to compile that list over the course of the year. I never get around to doing it, but it would be a fun project one of these years. It certainly would be. And as we get to our final few questions, uh, I have kind of one kind of practical uh, question to ask you or a kind of life question. And maybe it's just because I got married. So it's kind of on my mind a little bit. But uh, how do you manage being a good husband and father with the relentless baseball schedule uh, that Major League broadcasters have? It's tough. It's very, very tough. And uh, it's something I wrestle with and have wrestled with for a long time. I'll start with this. As I mentioned before, I met my wife working in baseball in Rochester, New York, back in 1996. So I think she knew what she was getting into. She was a baseball person. She understood uh, the baseball lifestyle a little bit. Uh, And so that certainly makes it a lot easier. And when uh, you hear baseball people talk about how their wives run the show and make sure the trains are running on time, uh, that's the way it is. We've got three kids and a dog and people all over the place and activities and I am gone for eight months out of the year. She's a single parent, essentially. Uh, and that's why in the off season, I try to be outside of hanging out with you guys, as selfish <laughs> with my time as humanly possible. Uh, and I want to make sure I'm the guy taking out the garbage and doing the dishes and putting the laundry away and 
dropping my daughter off at dance, picking my son up from school, whatever it is. Uh, you know, I try to do as much of that stuff as I possibly can because I know the grind that it is for my wife during the season. And thank God she's very understanding of it. Uh, for my kids, it's all they've ever known. Uh, but it's tough when you miss ball games and you miss dance recitals and things like that. Uh, as the years have gone on, every now and then now, I'll ask for a day off to see my daughter perform in a, in a big show. Uh, and there were years and years and years where I didn't miss a single game. And you reach a point where you realize, you know what? The game's going to be there tomorrow. My daughter is only going to be in Cinderella tonight. And uh, you don't get these days and these years back. So uh, it's something I will grapple with, Roger, until the day I hang it up or I get hung up. And, uh, you know, especially when you've got kids involved, it's very, very challenging. And it helps to have a superstar of a wife. And luckily I do. Final one for me, favorite venue to call a Major League Baseball game in. Now we factor in the environment and the booth, the, the size of the booth, how nice the media meal is. Like we're throwing everything on the table. Your favorite wow. venue in, in Major League Baseball. Well, I'm partial to Fenway Park. You know, the years I spent there in that environment there with the ballpark full every night with the Sitco sign and, and the Prudential Tower, uh, the Green Monster. Uh, I'm very partial. It's not the nicest booth. It may not be the best uh, press dining, but but there's something about the energy level at Fenway Park night in and night out that for me is very, very special. Uh, beyond that, the, the other park that I have no personal connection to uh, is Dodger Stadium. There's just something that comes over me when I walk in Dodger Stadium and you sit down in that booth and you look out at the hills in the distance uh, the weather's always perfect when you're there. There's a nice little breeze, and the sun is going down, and there's a huge crowd, and they're very into the game. And it just, for me, I've said this to a few people who I know are there for the very first time, there's no more major league feeling. Like, I am in the big leagues than walking into Dodger Stadium. Hearing the national anthem at Dodger Stadium, usually from some big-time performer, it just sounds different there than it sounds anywhere else. Uh, it's a very big league environment for me. And they're all big league, and they're all unique in their own ways. But uh, I would say Dodger Stadium is the one place that I get a different kind of feeling walking into on a regular basis. Well, Glenn, as we again start to wrap things up, uh, you not only do a great job with the Marlins, but you do a great job connecting with young broadcasters. I certainly felt that when I was at AA Jacksonville, and then I know so many Northwestern students through the years have used you as a resource, and you got to be encouraged by the future of broadcasting and a lot of the young talent you're starting to see in baseball and around media as well with some of the people you've helped work with. Well, it's amazing how much talent there is and now how much opportunity there is to do so many different things for young broadcasters, things that certainly didn't exist when I was coming. I wish I could have gone to the Cape Cod League and broadcast in the summer. I wish I could have plugged a microphone into my laptop and called games at my high school or at my college or whatever it is. Uh, but to see the initiative that people take getting involved at student radio stations, student TV stations, when they don't exist, I know people who have started their own student radio stations, student TV stations online, who've gotten great opportunities and turned that into careers. Uh, so there's so much talent. There's so much great opportunity. And the thing that I always stress to people is there are a lot of people out there like me who are happy to be resources for you guys. Uh, if you ever want to reach out and say, hey, will you listen to my tape? Can you offer some I was wondering about this. Can you answer a question for me? Uh, I can't say that everybody in the industry and every sport will get back to you immediately. But I know for me, particularly in the off season, and when I have some time on my hands, 
uh, I'm very happy to. I work with a lot of college students, a lot of minor league broadcasters, some high school students even. And uh, it's it's something that I wish I would have had access to when I was growing up. You know, I'd go to games at Wrigley Field or at Old Comiskey Park and look up at the radio booth and the TV booth and, uh, you know, you admire those guys. But I could never reach out to somebody on Twitter or via email and say, hey, Harry Carey, can you help me out with this? Uh, but now, you know, whoever it is that you listen to, who you like, who you respect, reach out to them and see if maybe they'll offer some some guidance, some constructive criticism. And uh, you know, there are a lot of people out there who are happy to help and willing to help. So I hope people will take advantage of those resources. Certainly hope they do. And this has been a great resource over the last hour, just catching up and hearing your baseball memories and what's important to you for baseball broadcasting. So, Glenn, just thank you so much for your time. We really enjoyed it. Happy to do it, Roger and Kyle. Great stuff. Fun talking with you. Thanks, Glenn. All right, that was Glenn Geffner of the Miami Marlins. Thank you for watching this week's edition of Broadcaster Hour.